Let's open God's Word together to 1 Samuel chapter 1. First Samuel chapter 1, we'll read the whole chapter, our text is the last two verses of that chapter. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions, But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come, about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. 
And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good. Tarry until thou have weaned him. Only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. We read God's holy word to that point. The text is the last two verses. Let's read them again. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Beloved of God, as Hannah is bringing the young child Samuel to Eli, In the tabernacle, she tells Eli in verse 27, For this child I prayed. That leads us to back up a moment to examine that prayer that she is referencing that's recorded earlier in the chapter beginning in verse 9. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Can you picture this godly woman having gone to the tabernacle by herself, coming to pour out her soul unto the Lord? The ways that the Bible describes her prayer indicates that this was an urgent, deep prayer out of her soul. This was no ritualistic thing for her. She went in bitterness of soul. She wept sore as she prayed. Verse 13 says she spake in her heart. And verse 15, she says, I poured out my soul before the Lord. I was filled up to the brim with the burden that is upon me. And I poured all that was in me out unto the Lord. Instead of praying out loud in the tabernacle, which was a fairly common thing to do, she mouthed the words of her prayer silently to herself. Eli, the high priest, was there and he misjudges the situation terribly. He thinks, here is some woman who at the Feast of Tabernacles, that's why everybody was in Shiloh where the tabernacle was, At the feast, she drank too much, and here she comes wandering into the tabernacle, drunk, mumbling as she goes. And he rebukes her, but she, out of her holy heart, responds to him, don't take me for a daughter of Belial. Don't take me for a a pagan woman, Eli. I haven't been pouring out drinks for myself. I've been pouring out my soul to the Lord God in prayer. And Eli says, Go then, go in peace, daughter, and may God grant your petition. If anybody thinks that in the Old Testament, religion was just formal and outward and ritualistic, let him think again. 
and read the prayers of godly Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and 1 Samuel 2. What is it that Hannah is praying for so urgently, so deeply, and with such burden and sorrow of heart? Hannah is praying for a son. And so urgently does she request this son from the Lord that she makes a vow to God concerning her request. In verse 11, she vows two different things. First, Lord, if thou wilt indeed give me a son, I will give him back to thee. I will return him to thee all the days of his life to the service of God in the tabernacle as a priest or as a prophet or as a judge or as all three. And then second, she vows, and not only that, I vow that I will give him to thee, to thy service as a Nazarite. Children, remember what a Nazarite is? It's someone who took a vow that they would not touch strong drink, they would not touch a dead body, and they would not cut their hair. And Hannah vows that her child will be given to the Lord as a Nazarite all the days of his life. Hannah is crying out, of course, out of her own personal agony and struggle because God has shut up her womb. She's childless. Verse 2 says it very straightforwardly. Hannah had no children. And then a bit later, the Lord had shut up her womb. Of course, that's a burden to this godly young woman. In the Scriptures, children are the heritage of the Lord. They are a blessing from Jehovah God. A blessing to know that God has granted you young ones to raise in the fear of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, even perhaps more from the point of view that every Israelite knew that the Messiah was going to come out of Israel, out of the children of the covenant. And she cries out of the burden of the fact that she is not participant in this, that in the covenant of grace, God has not given her this gift. Perhaps there are godly women here today who know something of this burden of Hannah, who desire children from the Lord. But the Lord has shut up her womb. And who have cried out to God with this same kind of cry out of the deep burden of the soul. We know the hurt and know how full one can get with this burden and pouring it out before the Lord. And sometimes God grants that request. And sometimes He does not. And always His way is best and right. But this is a special grief, isn't it? And for those of you who know this grief, you may know that Hannah knew this grief well. And out of her grief, like you, she bears her soul before the Lord and makes her vows. But Hannah's grief of soul and prayer for a child arises not only out of the fact that she has no child, but also out of the fact that she was constantly mocked for having no child, something that I hope no mother of Zion experiences here and don't think that it would be the case. 
Hannah was one of two wives of Elkanah, Hannah and Peninnah. And as is always the case throughout the Old Testament, as chastisement for this sin of polygamy when committed by the people of God, God gives troubles to the families that have entered into this sin. That's the case here. There's jealousy between Hannah and Peninnah. Elkanah himself loves Hannah more than he loves Peninnah. And yet Peninnah is the one who has children. And Peninnah is herself jealous of the love that Elkanah has for Hannah. And so every chance that she gets, she throws the fact that she has children and Hannah does not into Hannah's face. And apparently it was worst during the great feast when they traveled together as a family to Shiloh to the tabernacle to worship the Lord. Verse 7 tells us it was the worst at that point. Sometimes the case for us with family conflicts. They erupt over the holidays when there should be celebration of the goodness of God and the works that we are remembering. But the family all gets together and sometimes there are underlying difficulties that come out at times like this. That's what's happening here. The tensions that are there flare during this time of holiday and the worship of Jehovah God. Elkanah, out of his own care for Hannah, gives to Hannah a double portion of food. And you can imagine how Peninnah felt about that. And out of her own bitterness, it sets her off. Maybe something like this occurred. Mommy, why does Miss Hannah get more food than all of us? I don't know, dear. But you'd sure think that the one that has children and the one who's nursing children would get more food than the one who has no children, wouldn't you? Mommy, why doesn't Miss Hannah have any children? Well, I don't know exactly, child, but the only thing I can figure is that God must love me more than her. And on and on it went, and her adversary provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. Feeling very alone, as you can imagine. Hannah finds her only refuge in the Lord her God. And so after the meal is over, she gets up and by herself, she goes and heads over to the tabernacle inside that court, that curtain inside the, the main court of that tabernacle. She goes to pour out her soul and her request to Jehovah God, who alone can understand the depths of her grief. Oh Lord, Jehovah, she uses the covenant name of God, pointing of course to his promises in the covenant of grace. Oh Lord, wilt thou not grant me a son? Twice over he will be yours, given to thy service, and a Nazarite in Israel. All this explains, at least on the surface, Hannah's grief and Hannah's prayer. And yet, there is something more going on underneath the surface, in the depths of the mind and heart of soul of Hannah. 
And her vows reveal that. Her vows cannot be explained merely as a woman who does not have a child and who desires one in the midst of Israel. There's something else here. Hannah desires a child also because she is deeply vexed in her soul at the spiritual state of the Israel of God. And she desires that God would give her a son who would rise up in godliness in Israel and who would be an example for Israel of the way to walk in service of the Lord. It is not merely that her request is uttered out of a desire to shut her adversary's mouth. It's not merely that her request is uttered out of a desire to hold a child in her arms. After all, her vow means that she's not going to hold that child For very long. But she's going to give that child back to the Lord utterly. Her vow indicates there's something else here. Godly woman that she is. She's well aware of the desperate times spiritually for Israel. There has just been 400 years of the time of the judges where every man has done what is right in his own eyes. And the last judge has been Samson, used of God to be sure, but not a man who really was a boon spiritually for the Israel of God. And though Eli, the current judge, is a pious man himself, his sons are notorious for their godlessness, their desecration of the worship of God. They're forcing women who come to the tabernacle to worship Jehovah. And Eli is in part to blame for this. Likely she looks at her own home. Elkanah is a good man in many ways, but he's no spiritual leader. He's committed the sin of polygamy. Peninnah is raising the children of this home, and she is not a pious and godly woman. And Hannah knows what's needed in Israel is men of God to rise up in conviction and in holiness to the Lord and to lead God's people in a way of truth and righteousness. What the church needs are sons who are set apart unto Jehovah, consecrated unto Him, over against the age in which they live. And this is the burden of her soul. Grant me a man-child to rise up in Israel to be of spiritual benefit for the church of God. Hannah's sorrow and Hannah's prayer and Hannah's vow arise out of this too. A love and a concern for the future of the church. Why else would she require in her request a man-child specifically? It's not because she thinks there's something wrong with baby girls. It's because she wants to give birth to a man who can be given over to the Lord in the office and lead in Israel like a man should. And why else would part of her vow be that this man be a Nazarite unto the Lord? That's entirely unnecessary if all she was concerned about was just that she would have a child, even a covenant child. 
She's adding something here in her offering in this vow to give this child over as a Nazarite. That's really entirely unnecessary unless you take what I'm saying into consideration. There are only four lifetime Nazarites in the Bible. There are Nazarites, of course, who took a Nazarite vow for a period of time, maybe for a a month or whatever, but there are very few who took the Nazarite vow for their entire life. And in the record of Scripture, there's a very small number. Elijah, John the Baptist, Samson, and this Samuel. And she vows he will be a Nazarite all of his life, not for a couple of months, not for even a year, all of his life because the church needs a Nazarite at such a time as this. A man of God who will have the sign upon himself of some distinction between the church and the world who will rise up and live antithetically. You remember, children, that that was the point of the Nazarites. They would live and walk among the people of God And you could tell that they were Nazarites. They had taken a kind of sign upon themselves that would remind people that we are to be distinct, we are to be separate, spiritually speaking, from the world around us, from what is unclean. And Hannah's desire, for the sake of the church, is that God give her a child like that. Is there anything of that desire, beloved, in our prayers? Our prayers to have a child, and our prayers for our own children, and our prayers for the children of the church. Of course, there is in every couple, a a natural desire for children. And that was part of Hannah's too, absolutely. It's not as though that's wrong. But is there something more to our prayers? A cry of the heart, Lord, grant us children that we might raise them to be of value to Thy church. That they might come up and rise up in the midst of the Israel of God and stand for godliness, for truth, and for right. The church needs it, and the church is going to need it in the future. Look at the day and age in which we live. Every man does what is right in his own eyes, just as in the day of the judges. Let's call evil good, and good evil, and fulfill any lust of our desires. The only thing that's not tolerable is the law of Jehovah God. And it creeps into the churches too. And the prayer of God's people must be, grant us sons and grant us daughters, Lord God, who rise up in godliness and conviction and holiness and serve Thee in the fear of the Lord with gifts from thee to be used for the church in whatever way thou wilt use them, with the power of thy Spirit upon them, 
so that they rise up convicted in the midst of this age. That thy church might stand against the swelling tide of compromise. That they might recognize the heritage that's passed down to them and in love for the Lord God and the beauties of His Word and the glorious truths of the faith passed down to them. That they would rise up holy to the Lord. That's the prayer that all the church ought to be making together. Whether it's dads and moms, whether it's uncles and aunts, whether it's grandpas and grandmas, whether it's single members of the church, whether it's couples who are childless, all ought to be praying this for the children of the church. And yet there's obviously here something about the prayer of a godly mother. Hannah is the focus in this text. Sometimes, maybe many times, it is especially the mothers in Zion who feel this burden, who know their own responsibility and the Lord's own use of them in the church and who under this burden cry out with these prayers to God, God, for the sake of the future of the church. Grant us sons and daughters for the glory of thy name. A godly heart, a godly cry, and a godly vow. Sons and daughters, that we may return to thee all the days of their life. Jehovah heard Hannah's request. He opened her womb and gave her a son a true covenant child, a man who would rise up in godliness and with leadership abilities for the sake of the church. She names him Samuel, which means asked of the Lord, because, of course, she asked him of the Lord urgently. She explains to Eli in our, in our text, the Lord, Jehovah, again, the covenant name of God, to whom I have prayed, has granted me my petition which I asked of him. And though it must have been difficult for her, painful for her with her mother's love for her child, she does not now go back on her vow. After weaning him, along with her husband, she takes the lad to the tabernacle in Shiloh to return him to the Lord just as she had vowed, just as she had promised. And when she had weeded him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and an ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. Mothers nowadays nurse their children for what? Six months to a year? In the Bible times, they nurse them between three and five years. That's probably where Samuel was, somewhere in there, between three and five years old. Must have been precious years for Hannah with her boy, and yet she lets him go, brings him, and lets him go, just as she had sworn. The language that she uses when she brings him to the tabernacle to give him to be dedicated to God as an office bearer in God's church is very instructive. 
For this child I prayed, verses 27 and 28, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. The English word lent is not very helpful there. It's not the best translation. It almost leaves the impression that she is loaning Samuel to God and that she views Samuel as really her possession and yet she's loaning him to God for a time. When in the Hebrew it's actually the opposite. She views him as God's and God has given this boy to her for a little time and now she is returning him to Jehovah, dedicating him to Jehovah. That's the better word, return. I have returned him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be returned to the Lord. From three, four, five years old on, he would be raised as a Nazarite. From three, four, five years old on, he would become a prophet, priest, and judge, leading Israel into the service of Jehovah in this crucial time before the rise of the kings and the great king David. As they prayed, as they had vowed, they returned him to the Lord. How instructive for us this morning. I have returned him unto the Lord. That's really what you were saying, Trent and Chelsea, when you made your baptism vow this morning. You're basically saying the exact same thing as Hannah. You're appearing here in this place, and you're saying, I am returning this child unto the Lord. Children, when you return something, it's because it's not ultimately yours, right? Little girls, if you borrow a doll from somebody in your class... You have it for a little while. But when you have it, you know it's not yours. I'm borrowing it. But then I'm going to return it because it's my friend's. That's really the way that Hannah views Samuel. This is God's child against the way that we ought to view all of the covenant children. God doesn't, as it were, sign the legal papers giving them over to us utterly when He grants us these children that He puts into our arms and into our homes. They are ultimately His children that He gives to us to steward for Him for a time. And it's a gift to us and a joy to us and also a responsibility to us. But they are His and we are to return them unto Him in all of our work with them. Not that we take them to a priest or drop them off somewhere a boarding school or something like this, but that in all of our raising of them, we are turning them over to Jehovah in their mind, in their heart, in their soul, in their life. We're bringing them back in service to Jehovah God. That's the New Testament reality of, or version of this. And that returning them to Jehovah begins right here in baptism, doesn't it? when we come and take our vows before Jehovah God and before the church, we're saying, we've prayed for these children. 
And we have said to God in our prayers that we would raise them in the fear of the Lord. So when God grants us these children, then we take them to Him and we give them over to Him publicly in front of the church, in front of Him, to anybody in all the world who would care to listen. I'm returning this child to Jehovah. I promise, I vow a vow to Jehovah God that I will lend him to the Lord all the days of his life. Isn't that what we're saying? When we vow, we're going to raise our children in the aforesaid doctrine or help or cause them to be raised therein to the utmost of our power that we will lead them into truth and godliness, into holiness of life. And isn't that part of the symbolism of baptism that's applied to the children? Something like the Nazarite who was separated, distinct, and had a sign upon himself of his separation spiritually, of his distinctness. He wasn't separate physically, but spiritually different. When Israel crossed the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that that was a picture of baptism, and a picture of baptism specifically this way, that when the Israelites left Egypt, really the point of their break with Egypt was that crossing of the Red Sea, when those waves crashed down upon Pharaoh and his host and created that separation between Israel over here and Egypt over here with that water in between, that this is what's happening in baptism. They're being marked The sign is being placed upon him. These are not the children of the world. These are the children of the covenant. And they are to be consecrated unto Jehovah God, different from the sinfulness of this age. By bringing our children for baptism, we're saying, I will give them to the Lord. I will return them to the Lord this way. I will make them the best of my ability, Nazarites, though I can't do it, God must do it through me. And not only for the few weeks after baptism when I'm thinking about this because it's right in front of me, but for all the days of their life, I will return them to the Lord. What begins at baptism continues in our raising of them. So that all of our raising of them is really governed by this vow. I am returning this child to you, Jehovah. I'm turning him over unto the Lord in service to thee. This governs all of our decisions with our home life. This this governs the way that we raise them, the way that we live with them. It governs the fact that, nope, you're not going to watch that on TV. Yep, you are going to have restrictions on the internet and on your phone. Why? Because I vowed a vow. I'm returning you to Jehovah all the days of your life. 
I keep the Sabbath in this home. I teach you your catechism, and I have you go to catechism, and I make sure you know your catechism, and I talk to you about what your catechism means because I want to return you to the Lord. I vowed a vow to Jehovah God that I would do this. Sometimes it's helpful for us, for me, for all of us, to take a step back. Big picture, what is my parenting doing? What is the the ultimate goal of my parenting here? And what are all the little pieces of my parenting pointing toward? Is it pointing toward this right goal? And when they get older and are out of the house, and they look back on the parenting under which they were raised. What are they going to say about it? What was the ultimate goal we could tell of our home and of the driving of, the, of our parents in the raising of us? Are they going to say, I can see it plain as day. The one goal, ultimately, was to return us to the Lord all of the days of our life. Or will they say, you know, I think at the end of the day, the ultimate goal for my parents was a certain standard of living. And they were returning us to that all the days of our life. Nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong with a lot of money. If we don't love it, all of it, under this, unto the Lord, all the days of your life. Or, you know, I think at the end of the day, ultimately, the goal is to turn us over to sports all the days of our life. Or whatever else, you can put a million things there. God give us grace that when they look back, they say, oh, there's mistakes in my parents, but I know. In all their parenting, they were seeking to return us to the Lord all the days of our life. How do we pray for them? Beloved, how do we pray for them at the table in their hearing? You ever pray, and do I ever pray like this? Father, as parents, we have so many desires for our children, so many things we're trying to teach them and raise them to understand, so many goals for them, but at the end of the day, Father, At the end of the day, it does not matter to us. If their salary is six or seven figures, or if it's five. At the end of the day, what matters ultimately, Father, is not that they're the the star athlete or that They get the best grades. We want them to work hard and use their gifts to the best of their ability in every way, of course. But Father, any of that may fall away. 
but take them in their mind and heart unto thyself. That's what matters more than anything else, that they rise up in conviction for truth and righteousness for the sake of thy own name and for the good of thy Zion here below in the days in which we live. Use us, Father, to that end. And because, Father, there's so many sins and weaknesses in us, cover us in our parenting in the blood of the Lamb and cover our sons and our daughters' sins in the blood of the Lamb and use them too to point thy people to the blood of the Lamb. Striking that Elkanah and Hannah bring the sacrifice that they do when they come to return Samuel to the Lord. In verse 25, they offer a bullock as a sacrifice when they are dropping Samuel off at the tabernacle. The bullock is the blood offering for sin. And even in bringing their child unto the Lord, godly Hannah knows, and Elkanah, her husband with her, knows that they need the blood and that their child needs the blood. They know that even the raising of him for these five years has been stained with sin, although their entire goal has been to turn him over unto the Lord. They know that if he is going to rise up in the midst of the church for the good of the church, that he must know his own need for the blood, that though they have worked themselves to the bone, turning him over unto the Lord, he's a sinner. Samuel is a sinner. And Samuel himself needs the blood to cover his own sins. And they know if their boy Samuel is going to rise up in the church for the good of the church now and into her future, he must be a boy who understands the gospel, who understands the blood that covers his sin, and who is able to proclaim that gospel for the sake of the church. And so they bring the sacrifice for sin. How wonderful that on the occasion of baptism, when we return our children unto the Lord and make Hannah's vow, that even as we do so, the blood is being pointed to here and we're bringing them to this sacrament so that the blood may cover them and cover our parenting This water of baptism not only is that picture in 1 Corinthians 10 of the separation of Israel from Egypt spiritually, it's also a picture, of course, of the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sins, that removes the guilt of our sin from us, and also its its dominating power in our lives. And as parents, when we bring our children for baptism, we make our vows urgently, at the same time we know I'm not a perfect parent. And I have sins as a parent. And I have blind spots as a parent. And Father, I must be covered 
And my parenting must be covered. The sins of my parenting must be covered in the blood of the Lamb if this child is going to rise up in thy church for the good of the church and for the glory of thy name. And this child is a sinner. Himself naturally depraved. Totally depraved. Only by thy grace can he rise up in thy church. Only by thy grace knowing the blood that covers his own sins. Will he have a motive for living unto thee in the midst of the church? Without that, he's only going to be puffed up in pride. And we will only puff them up in pride. They need the blood. God cleanse them. They are thy children, the children of the covenant. And cleansing them, set them for the defense of the truths of thy word, at the heart of which is the holy gospel that cleanses them from their sins all their life long. When we do this as parents in the church, when we return them to Jehovah on the occasion of baptism, vowing our vow, Hannah's vow, before Jehovah, It's a joy for the whole church. And the whole church rises up in worship to Jehovah God who put it in the hearts of these parents to return their children unto the Lord, to vow this vow, to raise them in the fear of the Lord for the good of Zion and the glory of Jehovah God. You notice the last line of verse 28. And he worshipped the Lord there. Who Worshipped the Lord there. Eli worshipped the Lord there. Hannah is speaking to Eli. Eli's response is to worship the Lord. Eli knew the dire straits that the church was in. He knew the ungodliness of his own two boys and the damage they were doing to the church. He knew the need for men of God to rise up in the midst of the church holy unto the Lord, and struck by the provision of God and the urgency of this woman and of the vow that she vowed and now keeping her vow, returning him to Jehovah, he falls down right there in worship to God. Thanks, Lord. I need such a boy. Oh, beloved. Godly parents bring their children for baptism, returning them to Jehovah. Does not the whole church respond the same way? She worships. The echoes of Eli's worship were heard this morning in the church's singing of Psalter number 425. Thanks, Lord, for putting this in the heart of parents to make this vow. The the church needs boys and girls, to rise up under such vows for the glory of thy name. Samuel, of course, became that Nazarite and became that prophet, priest, and judge. And God is often pleased to give such children, godly children, 
to godly parents in the church and raise them for the church in this way, through this means. Not in every last instance, of course, but generally it is so. And when he does, it is evidence of his faithfulness to his church and faithfulness to his covenant that he keeps his promises that he will preserve his church to the coming of the Lord. Amen. Father, bless and keep us and grant to us, Father, the urgency of Hannah in our prayers and in our vows for the glory of Thy name. Amen.